hybridity or the multiple influences that we're seeing in novels is reflective of the sort of global, somewhat frenetic digital lives that mostly young people are growing up with. That there are images and texts and music and art popping up from all different corners of the world, and in some ways that's a glorious thing. The exposure and the things that we're able to learn and learning about places distant from us, or perhaps right next door, depending on where we live, is a wonderful thing. But I do think we have to be thoughtful about the art forms, the role of the novel is not just to recreate daily life. Coming up on In Contrast, author Jennifer Acker. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Jennifer Acker is the founder and editor of the literary magazine The Common. A teacher of writing at Amherst College, The Limits of the World is her debut novel. He remembered a night years ago when she'd stood in the living room in a long purple vest and pants, stylish platform shoes, black hair pulled up, twisted. His parents were going to a friend's house to practice disco dancing. The woman Sunil saw now, in an expensive sari, her hair short and frizzed, didn't look upright or keen or confident, but shrunken and sad. His mother embraced him fiercely, and he smelled the coconut oil in her hair, a scent he still associated with being balled out. He nearly drew away in an act of instinctive self-preservation, but she gripped his arms and swaddled him so hard he couldn't even hug her back. Was she crying over him, over Bimal, from exhaustion? It was awful to see her black mascara tears, her distraught face, and he wondered what comfort he could offer her. Jennifer Acker, it's really a pleasure to have you here in In Contrast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with an aspect of the novel that caught my attention, and that is that this is in many ways a novel that complicates issues of migration and immigration. Often we see on television, in the media, the comings of individuals from other parts of the world, mainly to developed countries, I'm talking about Europe or the United States, in search of a better life, in search of an opportunity for themselves and for their children. In the novel, the relationship between the protagonist couple, Amy and Sunil, is different than the traditional view that we have on immigration. I wonder if you can reflect on that aspect of your novel, immigration, migration, the comings and goings, and in this particular case, obviously, Africa and the United States. It is very much an immigration story, although I'm not sure that I conceived of it in exactly that way at the beginning. But one thing that captivated me about this family and their story is that almost every generation moves to a different continent. So it's not even as if there has been a family who has been in one place for generations and then makes a big move, say, to the United States, which is more often what we tend to hear. But in this case, this is a family whose ancestral home is in India, in the west part of India. And although there has been for centuries a immigration between the west coast of India and the east coast of Africa across the Indian Ocean. Those were mostly coastal peoples. They were traders. And this family in particular didn't come until very late in the 19th century. And 
there's sort of the great-grandparents of the story immigrate as children from India to Kenya and make their home in Nairobi. And then there are two generations that are born in Nairobi, but that third generation, and in this book, the protagonist, Urmila, and her husband, Premchan, are born in Nairobi, but then they immigrate to the United States, and their son, Sunil, is first born in a first-generation American. And so that's an extremely complicated story, and those moves have to create rifts between members of the family because each has grown up in a different culture with different expectations, and I think that really lays the groundwork for the tensions in this family. In those rifts, in those tensions, have much to do with the fact that even after being in Kenya after several generations, or even after moving to the United States and entering educations of higher learning, in this case, Sunil going to Harvard, they feel as outsiders. They are in whatever country they have arrived to, depending on the character, but they are not quite in. They have those degrees of separation. And I think the different feelings of integration and the different realities of integration are very stark between Sunil, who grows up in America speaking English, going to public schools, or later he goes to private school. But his whole upbringing is one of this American assimilation and integration, whereas his parents grew up in an Indian community that was very much apart from the African community. And of course, it was set up that way by the British during the colonization process. That part of what colonization and colonialism did was to stratify society with the Brits at the top and the tiny minority. And then in the case of East Africa, there was a slightly larger sort of merchant class of Indians from different places in India, different religions, different backgrounds. And then this much larger African class divided by tribe and by language. So Already in this region, in East Africa, there were somewhat, you might say, natural divisions, but those were enforced and in an unstable society, people draw together and it becomes very insular. And the more people become worried about their place and their economic security, the more they pull together, the more barriers they put up. And so I really was trying to sort of draw that contrast between those two kinds of immigration and how different it was for Sunil in the States. And partly that's America, partly that's Sunil, partly that's the age, the times that he's growing up in. But there really are these different models of immigration. I'm fascinated by that because when Sunil comes to the United States and then he meets the other protagonist of the book, Amy, he's a, an American Jew and they marry, they belong to each of them to very distinct ethnic or religious groups, very different from one another. And it's interesting how, whereas his parents in Kenya and arriving to the United States had to protect that environment and feel that they were part of a community, though when arriving to the United States, they get exposed to all sorts of different forces. He looks to me as one that is deliberately moving out from that, getting away. He finds that suffocating. He feels that it is impeding his own process of development. He feels somewhat constrained by this familial ideal of staying within your own community, within your own language group, your own cultural group. And while his childhood was taken up with spending weekends with these other families who were families like his parents, other Indians with similar backgrounds, that's not what the day-to-day -day of his life is like. In the day-to-day -day of his life, when he's going to school, he's the only brown kid on the block. He's the only brown kid in his school. 
And so he has to be like other people. And so that tension, which I think a lot of immigrant kids feel or a lot of first-generation kids feel, is very much representative of his upbringing. And Amy, his girlfriend at the beginning of the book, and then they quickly marry, has had an American childhood, grown up with parents who are Jewish but were more culturally than religiously Jewish in the beginning and then undergo a kind of religious conversion, which they pull themselves back as a choice in the middle of their life. They decide that they want to be more religiously oriented, and that's bewildering for her. So she, at this point in her life, is trying to understand how she is going to relate to her parents now that they have made this choice and they have rules that are unfamiliar to her and doing things that she feels are quite alien. There's an interesting way that these two things push Sunil and Amy together. They have also quite different relationships with their parents. One of the things that I really love in the book is that when we think of immigration, and I guess this is a topic that is in the eye of a beholder, we are living or going through a, a very deep transformative moment in the United States about what it means to be part of this country and where you come into this country, what class you belong, what education you come to and through. And what I like is that your characters are also at one point being pushed to go back, in this case, going back to Kenya, to Nairobi. This is about the children of the immigrants. That is, that Sunil has already been in the United States and is part of the whole experience of assimilation and now has to go back because there has been an accident and his cousin is in the hospital and then other things happen as a result that include other big events that make him, along with Amy, his partner, his spouse, recognize Kenya through different eyes, the eyes of an, now an outsider who's going back. And those are beautiful sections, the arrival to Nairobi and seeing it as one who came from there but is returning. That idea of return seems so strange. I think we have this idea that once people come to America, here's the life and here we stay. But of course, the reality of many families is that there are many trips home and many trips to see relatives Sunil has not had so much of that during his life, partly by choice and partly because of economics. I mean, it's, it's expensive to get back to Nairobi. But he has spent some part of his childhood there, so he's familiar with it. But, you know, he hasn't been since he was 15, and it feels sort of like a dream. Like, was this really me? Did I really spend time here? Was this language really one that I was familiar with at some point? And so part of why he wants Amy to come is not only for moral support, but sort of as a cultural interpreter. He has his partner alongside him to say, what do you see? And are you seeing what I'm seeing? And is my vision clouded by my own experience? Or let's compare notes. And they do some touristy things. His family takes him around to different places in Nairobi, and then they have a safari experience on their own. But all of those are trying to be seen through multiple lenses, of course, through his parents as well. And it's a, a homecoming for them. And this place means so many different things to each of them. It is often said that the writer chooses a topic, but that the topic chooses the writer as well. There is an astonishing amount of research that has gone into this novel about Africa, about the migrations to Africa, about that Indian community that you so vividly recreate, and about how Africa has gone through different waves of politics and economics and transformations that are 
very clear in the way Nairobi as a city is being described. Did this topic choose you? Did you choose the topic? Maybe both. I suppose maybe it did choose me in a funny way. My first exposure to this Indian community in Nairobi was before I went to college. I took a year off before college. And I spent some of that time in Kenya, sort of the first semester. And I had to go see a doctor at some point. And I met this woman who was Indian, but was not visiting from India. She lived there, and she was part of this community. And that was so extraordinary for me as a kid from rural Maine. It's not that I was so sheltered, but I didn't know about this particular community. And that was really eye-opening. And then as fate would have it, a few years later, I actually met and then married a man who is from this community. Not directly. He, like Sunil, was born in the States, but has family in East Africa. And that's when I really felt like there's so much here. And I didn't start even thinking about writing a book about this kind of migration or this community for many years. But it was so interesting to me, this immigration story, that it stuck with me. And I think that I had to do something with it. <laughs> there is today also a big debate about who gets to tell a story. Who tells the story about Africa or about Latin America or about Asia? And we have moved from the value of the story per se to the perspective of the story. Your story is told from a variety of perspectives and a variety of generations in a variety of insiders and outsiders. And so I wonder, what are your views on this very hot topic of appropriation? And is it paralyzing us in some way, in not allowing us to sometimes tell stories that anybody could tell. It is a vexed issue, and it certainly is one that may come up during the publication of this book. I myself am not Indian. I have a very close proximity to this community, but I'm not from it, and it's not my story. It's a story that I learned and imagined and researched and talked to people about, And that's the best we can do as fiction writers, especially if I wanted to write something about the 17th century, I would have to do an incredible amount of research. There wouldn't be people around for me to talk to about that era, but I would have to look at first-person documents and try to recreate the material. And I think about writing about other cultures in a similar way to writing about other times that It has to be done with sensitivity, with an awareness that you, the writer, are fallible, that you could be getting things wrong, that you have an obligation to get some other perspectives from people who are from the community to give you feedback. But I think that it would be a terribly impoverished world of writing if we were told that we could only write our own stories, that the only ethical allowance was to write about what had happened to you and That feels sad as a writer, and it would be a very short writing life as well. I'm thinking here of Shakespeare, who could write about Venice without having ever visited, or about the Caribbean in The Tempest, or other places, North Africa, etc. We don't often complain that Shakespeare is usurping or taking over the stories of others, including Anthony and Cleopatra. But there is this side today that is repeated, I would say even hammered, in creative writing programs that you have to write about what you know. And I get frightened by that statement, by that mantra, write about what you know. You seem to be 
doing not quite that. I think that's right. I think that the excitement of writing is imagination. And it's not imagination if you're only writing about what you know, that what we value about fiction writing and about novels of all kinds is inhabiting another consciousness. And yes, we should do that with empathy and with sensitivity and with as much understanding as possible and as many surrounding conversations as possible. But I do find that to be lamentable, this idea that we are all only limited, even in our imaginations, to our own experience. I sensed as a reader, as one more reader of the book, as any reader would, certain passions and maybe lifelong devotions to authors that I'm guessing here. And one of the echoes that I kept on hearing is a writer that I personally admire, though his politics can be very controversial, V.S. Naipaul, particularly a book of his called A Bend in the River. I wonder if you could talk about the influences, about the models that you had as you were writing this debut novel that you just published. Certainly, Naipaul was a big influence. And when I first began reading him and admiring him, I didn't know anything about him as a person. In fact, it wasn't really until the biography came out fairly recently that I understood more about what a complicated figure he was and what his attitude was towards women writers, all sorts of other prejudicial statements. But the book of his that I really love is A House for Mr. Biswas. And it is a diasporic novel about Indians. And I read it multiple times over the course of writing and thinking about my book. And I just think that the main character and the family there are done with so much consideration and empathy and humor. There's real love for the figures in that book while they are being poked fun at or while their foibles are being exposed. And I did really love that book. So that's certainly a strong influence. And I think another one, although the direct influence probably is not very tangible in this book, but Shirley Hazard is, is my favorite writer. And when I discovered her, it was a whole world of writing that opened up. And her sentences are so crystalline and elegant and beautiful and pack so much into such a small space that I rewrite her regularly. And I've always admired the sort of globalism of her books. They take place all over the world. And of course, she was Australian, but lived in New York and had connections with Naples. And she was a sort of global citizen who was very precocious. And I try to learn something from her example. One of the astonishing levels also of the book is the multi-generational structure that it has. And you give life, inner life and outer life, to members of different classes and ages, in male and female. And I would love to hear from you what it means to write an older male character, a younger female character, if there are challenges. There used to be some complaints years ago that Philip Roth, a writer that I admired, just could not write female characters, that the female characters are always stilted, cartoonish, predictable, whereas the male characters are complex, ambivalent, ambiguous. I wonder what are the strategies you take in order to make both female and male characters come alive? 
When I first started writing the book, I started with Ormila. She was the most compelling character for me as I thought about the situation that she was in as an immigrant trying to run an American business and what her complicated feelings about motherhood and homeland and being a wife and all of those things, what that might be like for her. And then I think next came Sunil because I knew that this would be a mother-son story, but I didn't know if he would have a point of view. And the most challenging for me was thinking about the father, Ormila's husband, about Premchand's point of view, because I knew he was a very quiet character in some ways and somewhat reserved and somewhat removed from the things that were going on in his life. And I wasn't sure that I could know how to give interiority to a character like that who on the outside was so reserved. There wasn't much on the outside to go on, and so creating an inner life for him was probably the most challenging. And I had my challenges with Amy, too, which perhaps is surprising because she's the only character in the book who resembles me at all demographically. And I struggled with her because I didn't want her to be me. I didn't want her to be like me. And so I tried to follow the advice of one of my writing teachers who said, well, if you have a character who's a little bit like you... Maybe she's like you, but she has enormous feet. And what comes out of that? The fact that she can never find shoes that fit her. I have big feet. So I thought, well, let's make a tiny character, (laughs) someone who's really small. And what might come out of that? But it took me a long time to come to her as well and to present her in a way because she doesn't have her own point of view. In a book that has four points of view, how do you make a character come alive when we can't get inside her head? There is also the fact that the characters, not all of them, but Urmila and Sunil particularly, are selfish. There's a selfishness in them. It's not egomania. It's selfishness. They are very concerned with who they are, and they are about territory. I'm talking about emotional territory. And they, as mother and son, fight for that territory. She wants to see him in a particular way, and he wants to run away from the particular way that Urmila has, and it's a traditional mother-son story. I have an image for you, and no, you won't tell me what image I should have for myself. What do you do with characters that you at some point might not like? Urmila, in particular, strikes me as a very difficult character to like, let alone being the son like Sunil. She is just a tough woman. She is tough. She's really tough. And I think I just had to lean into it, that that was part of the experiment and the fun of writing this book was to think about, can you write a character who you can get inside of sympathetically, but who does a lot of things that you don't like? And I have read plenty of books where there are characters who I didn't like, but I also couldn't understand why they were behaving the way they did. And if you can't understand why people are acting a certain way, then you tend to write them off, and that becomes very frustrating. So I knew that the key to her would be understanding her train of thought, even if you disagreed with it or even if you thought it was repugnant in some way. One thing I discovered during the revision process was that people had a lot of natural sympathy for her because she was an immigrant, because she was an older woman, because she was in an unhappy marriage. So I had to push her actions really to the far end of what you think would be allowable in order to give her that spark that I was looking for. I want you to reflect a little bit on 
the place of the novel in America today. You are the editor of the magazine The Common. You publish short stories and poetry and essays and memoirs, translations. You have the pulse of what is happening. Maybe the submissions to a journal like this are not the big, bulky novel. We're also at a time when young people might not be reading. At least one hears that complaint all the time. Or they don't have the time to read an entire book. They read, but they read tweets or they read emails, or they read Instagrams. And maybe there's something romantic about sitting and writing a novel in 2019? I hope so. I want to embody that romanticism. And how much fun is it to think up a whole world and people it with characters and then, then run with that? One thing that I do see happening is this increasing trend towards hybridity towards a piece that is not fiction or nonfiction, it's not memoir or fictionalized memoir, but includes poetic forms and some sort of confessional tones and then some completely imagined works. And I just think that's interesting, and I don't really know where it's coming from. I think maybe it does come from the sort of digital age of the age of the pastiche where there are many, many streams coming together. I also think it comes from wanting to assert one's identity that you feel like There always has to be a first person in whatever you write. And I do find that a little bit disheartening, the idea that every book has to reveal something about the identity of the writer, maybe coming back a little bit to our ideas about cultural appropriation. But I don't know where that trend is going to go. But there are still so many people writing novels, and I just hope people continue to read them. There used to be, particularly in the late 19th century, the sense that novels were not only entertainment, but they taught you how to live in some ways. There was a, I hate to use the word pedagogical, but it's kind of an educational aspect that if you read Oliver Twist or if you read Anna Karenina or A Tale of Two Cities, not only did you get into the fascinating life of major cities and major characters, but you also learned how to have your own moral compass more attuned or more aware. Do you think that we have given that up? Do you think that in this hybrid form that is the novel today that includes different voices and different ethnicities, that we are trying out on the page something that has an impact on how we live our lives? Do you think it's more rare for people to write those sort of 19th century novels like George Eliot would write that are reflecting on our daily lives and really getting inside the ethical decisions of each character. I think of Min Jin Lee's book, Pachinko. She describes as a Victorian novel, and all of her characters are good. Even if they don't behave perfectly all the time, they are always trying to do good. I found that really striking, and perhaps I found it so striking because there aren't as many novels being written like that now. And I think this hybridity or the multiple influences that we're seeing in novels is reflective of the sort of global, somewhat frenetic digital lives that mostly young people are growing up with, that there are images and texts and music and art popping up from all different corners of the world. And in some ways, that's a glorious thing, the exposure and the things that we are able to learn and learning about places distant from us or perhaps right next door, and depending on where we live, is a wonderful thing. But I do think we have to be thoughtful about the art forms, that the role of the novel is not just to recreate daily life. 
that there is a particular form to it. And you could create a sort of messy pastiche of a novel that is wonderfully successful. But some thought does need to go into what form the narrative should take. I am catching you just as the novel is being released. It's your debut novel. I wonder what are the emotions that go through. This is the book that you've been working on for some time. And now people have finished copies in their hands and are reading it and are reacting to it. What's your inner life about in that sense? It's a little bit like a yo-yo, I think. There's both an inhale and an exhale at the same time. I have enormous pride and relief that this project that I've been working on for a decade is finally public. It's this project that has been private for so long is now public, and I can meet readers, and I can talk to people about it, and I might even meet someone who I've never met who has read the book, someone I'm not related to, and that is all really very exciting. But of course, it's this great sense of exposure, which I haven't had to this extent before. As an editor, you're very much behind the scenes. And although I have published essays and personal things that reveal a bit more about who I am as a writer, this is the first and largest public exposure. And it's nerve wracking. I don't know what people are going to think. And I think this just puts me with all of the other writers out there who have experienced the Do same you, thing. Would you feel bad if they don't like it? Would you feel good if they like it? Do you mind? Or is it that when one finishes a book, you're at the mercy of others? And so... Well, I try to be sanguine about it in, in that way and say readers of all kinds are out there. And I don't think it bothers me so much that people don't like the book, or if they don't like the book, I don't think that bothers me so much. I think for a while I'll just be able to feel good about completing the project. And Jen, when one is an editor, is one more self-conscious of how a page looks, of how a sentence is built? I wonder if, aside from all the reading that you've been telling me about and all the influences and all the passion that you have brought into this, in going back to your very first trip that you made to Africa, if your life, day in and day out, working with other people's manuscripts, makes you see your own manuscript in a particular way? I think it has helped me become a better editor for myself. Having edited other people for years, I hope, I think, that I've developed a much keener eye for structure. And it took me quite a long time to come to the structure of this book. And I needed other editors, my editor who worked with me on the last stretch of the book, to knit together a narrative in a much tighter way, that that has always been a struggle for me. But I have developed a much keener sense of structure and how structure is related to theme. And I do try to bring that with me towards my own writing. And Reading other people's work helps you become more attuned to your own failings or in things that you admire in other people's work are things that you then try to implement in your own work as well. We're coming to the end, and I have one more question to ask you. And that question has to do with the title of the book that I like very much, The Limits of the World. As I finished the book, I thought of a number of different ways to understand it. And I also thought of a play that David Hare wrote many years ago that was about V.S. Naipaul as an explorer through narrative of the limits of the world, of edges, where we go or don't go depending on who we are. It is unfair to ask an author to explain anything of her book, including the title. 
And so I'm really not asking you to explain it. I wonder if you simply want to say anything related to the title. It is philosophical in nature, the title, and I don't think that it is being overly explanatory to say that the inspiration comes from a quote from Wittgenstein, who doesn't make an appearance in the book and whose philosophy does not enter into the book, but one of our characters is a burgeoning philosopher. But the quote is, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And that idea is even in a philosophical sense, is not applicable to the book. But in a broadly literary metaphorical sense, the idea that there are limits to one's own world and one's own culture, and yet those limits are porous and permeable and always breaking down, is the sense behind this book. And so the limits of our language have to do with how the world in which we have been shaped, educated, where we come from, has defined that world and maybe that our journey pushes those limits in a different direction? I don't think of it so much as the language that we're raised in gives us certain concepts or, or ideas. It's not that sociological notion. It's more perhaps about how important language is and how what we say to each other, especially those people closest to us, really matters. It's been wonderful to have you in In Contrast. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. This was really fun. In the debate about appropriation in the arts, I know where I firmly stand in favor of it. There's no way you'll convince me that the artist can only do art about what she knows, about what she has experienced, about what belongs to her. Art is about the opposite. It pushes us to go beyond our confines. It puts us inside someone else's skin. Think of Shakespeare. He never left the area between his native Stratford-on-Avon and London, yet his plays are set in Africa, Scotland, Italy, Greece. You don't need to travel to these places to write about them. That's the fallacy of contemporary writing workshops. Likewise with Michelangelo and Tintoretto. And it happens with music, too, and dance, and sculpture, and cinema. Should a New York filmmaker not make a Western because he didn't grow up in Oklahoma? Can only a black person direct a movie about Malcolm X? The imagination needs to be set free. Of course, research should be done and thoroughly. But you can become someone else through art. The limits of the world... What are they? For science, they are about nature, about the physicality of the universe in which we live, which, while infinite, has boundaries, porous as they might be, at least in terms of how it is conceived. A black hole is immeasurable, yet it is a black hole. Imagination is even more open. According to Maimonides, the medieval Jewish philosopher, it cannot be contained, not even by God. That which is imaginable exists, and what can't be imagined belongs to the realm of death. I like when an author dares to go beyond her limits, when she is ready to touch the edges of her world. I like it even more when she enters other cultures, appropriating them. For culture doesn't belong to anyone, not even to its people. 
It is free for everyone to reshape. Come on, take a dip. Appropriate someone else's culture today. Do it with respect, even reverence, but also with courage. Dare to inhabit it. Dare to reconfigure it. By doing it, you'll understand much better your own. Next time on In Contrast. For me, I got stuck in this one moment. I was maybe nine, ten years old, and I'm in my bedroom, and I'm playing. I'm make-believe by myself, just like the girl in the book. Just She's bored, so she's coming up with something. And I catch myself speaking. I become aware that I am the narrator. I am the person telling this story. And suddenly, as opposed to being able to just run with it and go with it and see where it takes me, I start to realize I'm strategizing about the story I'm telling. I'm aware of where I want it to go. I'm aware of how it's going to end. Author and illustrator Aaron Becker on the next In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with authors Grace Telusen, Carmen Maria Machado, and Andrew Debus, visit our website at nepr.net. Let us know what you think about In Contrast, review us on Apple Podcasts, or send an email to radio at nepr.net. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavitz. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Thank you.